Hi, my name is Amanda Reyes, and I'm the editor and co-author of Are You in the House Alone? A TV Movie Compendium, 1964-1999. Hello, everyone. My name is Dan Bunnick. I'm author from Beverly Hills to Hooterville, a guide to the TV's Henningverse, 1962-1971. to And we are part of the Made for TV Mayhem show. We have a third. His name's Nathan Johnson, but he couldn't make this recording, which is too bad because we're all really big fans of this ABC Movie of the Week, which is a legit classic of the Movie of the Week era. It is called Moon of the Wolf. And um, it's a really interesting movie. So one of the things that happened when I did some of my research was a lot of these people work together in other productions. And while I was watching this earlier today, as I was prepping for the recording, I thought to myself, you know, this is kind of a family affair. And I think that's really interesting because this is a movie about families. And I don't know how deep we'll get into that because there's a lot to talk about here, but I wanted to kind of plant the seed about the kind of class structure and commentary that might be happening in this film between the two families. One, they come from the French side that are immigrants. And then we've got the sort of elite Rodanth family um, that we'll be meeting here in a minute. But um, if we don't get to that, we don't get to that. So I just wanted to mention it here. But uh, also, we're super excited to be here because I know for a fact that this is one of Dan's favorite made-for-TV movies. And I think that it he is. has an awful lot to say. So why don't you get us started? I do. Uh, I, I will say I actually I was able to read uh, the novel that this Ooh. is based on the Leslie H. Whitnam. Well, well, I, uh, yeah, I did. I did actually get through all of it. It was, it was kind of a rush there for a moment. And that's not a joke because Barbara Rush is in, in the movie. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and, and I was able to read it and, and it's, it's, it's much more, there's a lot more family ties. There's a lot mm. more, um, stuff going on. There's with the big moment being that the, um, uh, the young woman killed here is white in the book. She's black. Yes. And which leads to a lot more racial tensions and a lot. I mean, the book could have been reading it. The book could have been a three-hour movie or more. And they do a pretty pretty sharp job of, of bringing it down to a, a sweet 74 minutes, which I think is the real sweet spot um, for, for TV movies. Yeah, and you again, know. Oh, oh go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, and I first saw this movie on a, I, I remember seeing it on a shelf in Super Duper Video in North Hollywood a uh, long, long time ago. And I remember seeing it, looking at it and going, there's no werewolf movie called Moon of the Wolf, and not realizing that it was a TV movie. So, so I've watched it many times since. So I'm, I'm so glad to talk about it, and I'm so glad to talk about anything with David Jansen in it, if I may uh, say. Yeah, David Jansen's one of those great actors that was just always going to bring you into the film, keep you anchored, and always deliver a great performance. One thing I want to note about David Jansen in this, as we can watch while we're talking through this, is that this is one of the few movies where I see him smile kind of a lot. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah, he usually plays these kind of like more serious characters. And we can talk about that because he, he felt like his characters had to have some level of warmth, and they do, but he's very straight-faced in a lot of his delivery and performances. Here, though, there's a very nice romance that he has with the Barbara Rush character and there's a lot of smiling and a lot of chemistry and it's really really well done um, I think all the performers in this are absolutely excellent but I wanted to briefly go back and talk about so this was adapted from a novel as you mentioned by Les Witten and he was a muckraker and so um he dealt a lot in politics, particularly in Watergate, and this came to be this novelization, or I should say the adaptation of the novel, came to be right before he was going to really make a name for himself as one of the big people working on uh, Watergate. So uh, he was out and about and doing these things. So I'm not surprised that there's this political undercurrent um, that we see here in the movie, but more so probably in the book. Yes, the book is... Um 
it's 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 very it's very thick. I I was I um, the book itself is only about two hundred thirty pages, but when I sat down to actually read it, there are many more characters. There are and it's 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 the you get the richness of the town. Uh, Sheriff Whitaker's character, who is David Jansen, Jansen here, is actually a deputy. He's mm. an ex he's an ex marine who used to live in the town. He's retired and he's come back. And there is an actual sheriff above him and a constable. Um, somewhere in there too, so he's not um, he's not in charge mm-hmm. of everything here. But much of the book is from his point of view, and he's kind of a guy struggling um, with being back and the way the town works. And um, and uh, he's actually a shop teacher also. Oh, in interesting. Book, which and, was kind of neat. Yeah, it is pretty neat. Um, uh, yeah, it's one of the things about the novel that um, I heard about when I was reading a little bit because I wasn't able to access the novel, but was that a lot of it deals with the psychology mm-hmm. of like this uh, lycanthropy, which is yes. kind of an interesting approach. And I think at the time it was considered a pretty unique uh, and much loved book. The reviews I could find were all very positive. When, when it actually gets to the, the, the doctor describing to Whitaker what's going on, he he says fully that it's 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 lycanthropy. It's not. It's a, it's like a disease. It's not actually what you think of as a werewolf. It isn't quite that. It's a, it's actually he he doesn't quite um, pin it down like one hundred percent. But it's very much like it's a werewolf, but it's not. It's monomania. It's it's lycanthropy. It's 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 something that manifests itself inside of this person rather than actually like a full on like Lon Chaney big yeah. big hair or like a David Naughton turning into a wolf kind of thing. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think the TV movie, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, uh, the TV movie werewolf films really took interesting kind of perspectives yes. on the idea of werewolf. But also there's this idea of a repression in, in um, the Bradford Dillman character that's that's really interesting. And I think that that manifestation really carries through. But real briefly, while we're here watching the doctor scene, I don't know if you thought this when you were watching it, but it felt like Jaws to me. Like this is the oh, Richard yeah. Dreyfuss character being like, it's not, you know, a voting yeah. accident. It's a shark. Because <sighs> the way he delivers it here and he's over the sink and everything it just mm-hmm. it's, it reminds me of like a precursor to jaws yes yes it does have the it does have that feel to it except kind of um a little sweatier yeah well that's another really interesting thing about this movie is that it is bayou yeah well it's a really oppressive heat so we were talking about sort of this repressed manner that Bradford Dillman's character has but there's oppression everywhere including the weather and one of the things I think is really interesting in, in a lot of uh, novels about the south or films where uh, they're trying to depict it maybe this movie is giving us a couple of different commentaries that we'll talk about but there's this idea of it being sultry right they use these different mm-hmm. words but here it just feels sweaty right like it does yeah. they are weighed down by the heat and they're weighed down by what's inside of them and the, it's a southern gothic ultimately i think this film it's it's as you spotted also it's something that i don't think barbara rush's character except until the very end when there's fire i don't think she sweats no. maybe her brother doesn't either because they're like scenes where Whitaker is hanging out with her and she um she's dressed lovely and everything and he's got you know his shirt buttoned down there and he's he's got sweat on his back and sweat That's under right. his pits and everything but she never it's like the Rodanths or whoever they do, we're known for not sweating that is our family trait we don't sweat I could see where maybe Andrew wouldn't because I don't know that werewolves have sweat glands I haven't looked mm. that up 
<laughs> it's like a dog, yeah. Yeah, and and we're being introduced to uh, some really yes. amazing actors here. We have Claudia Gneal as Sarah. Now she worked with the director Dan Petrie in Raisin in the Sun, um, which is really interesting. We have Jeffrey Lewis, and this I believe is Paul R. Deville. The only other credit he has is for an episode of The Monkeys, which I think is called Monkeys a la Carte, where he plays Pop. He <laughs> is interesting. Right. Yeah, interestingly enough, he is not French. He's Italian. He was born oh. in Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't find any theater credits for him or anything. He only has those two IMDb credits, and, and I'm sure he's done something else. But uh, but unfortunately, nothing came up. He's so good in this role. It, he's great. I mean, because he, he has they, – they do a thing that I, I love where he's he's saying the word over and over again that no one understands. Yeah. And they think it's – it's it's in the book, it's Lukaruk. In here, it's like Luke Garud. Yeah. And then obviously – if you if you've seen the ad for this movie, um, it says Luke Guru means werewolf. I hope I didn't spoil anything. But it's like something. Why are you doing that? That's that's meant to be like I knew what a Luke Guru was because I'm 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 familiar with the term. But I'm sure there were tons of people who are like, what does that mean? What is he saying? And then what's revealed later on, it's like, oh boy, oh boy. So, but but yeah, it's, it's, I love I love when they do stuff like that where they have like the the um the the word or the or the saying or something where you're like, huh what and then someone's able to interpret it yeah it is really interesting it carries through the film i will say the whodunit isn't like the it's most not, yeah it's not it's really yeah, yeah it's not really the biggest part of the film i think the part of the film that i love and i think that maybe the filmmakers were working on was this idea of how something like this reveals like the underbelly of the yes. small town and that's what's so important about this film is that it, it, in 75 minutes it's actually doing a lot of different things um, including this idea of like we talked about like this sort of not a battle of the classes mm-hmm. but this idea of maybe turning stereotypes on their ear and i just wanted to briefly talk about this character um oh, we're yes. not quite and- at the scene yet but he is the brother of the girl that was found dead earlier and there's a moment where he talks about um punching her mm-hmm. and, oh yes coming out yeah, yeah. yeah and and i wanted to just give this some context because i feel like people who sometimes watch older movies see things that are pretty uncomfortable and maybe a little unacceptable and then think that maybe that it was uh, acceptable in the 70s and i think mm-hmm. he's supposed to be a very complex character and you're not supposed to agree with that but at the same time there's things about him that are likable which is why i think it's such a great character so beautifully written i actually think the andrew character is the best written and we can talk about that but and he does he does something right here where when he's trying to tell his story he actually has to go far away sit in a boat and hide behind reeds yeah he can't stand next to the sheriff and tell the story he's sort of embarrassed he has to sit on the edge of the mississippi to tell his story he can't be right there which I yeah, really love. it's just such a such a nuanced film, and um, and it's got all these moments. So, and it's coming up here, but I just wanted to give it some context because I think it's supposed to be, oh God, that's really bad. But at the same time, mm-hmm. he's this kind of good brother sometimes, and and a loving <laughs> son, and and it's complex. And where I think it's flipping the stereotype is we're here at at the same year that Deliverance came out, right? And mm-hmm. and that's when everything came from like good old boys to good old boys, where that mm-hmm. that term really took a darkness to it and and here the movie's kind of like saying okay we're gonna like lead you that way but we're also gonna reject that because i think between the two families who's got it worse off 
the elite right so Mm -hmm. um the guy who runs the town is really the one that's creating all the havoc and and even though there's some sympathy i think there too but it's really interesting and so this movie is kind of a bridge between um like the henningverse movies that are tv shows that you are so familiar with to deliverance and then and then after that um and i'm really impressed with like where it shows up in this kind of place and time in the world of film and television. Yes. And uh, just, just one observation. When the previous scene ended, Jeffrey Lewis, he's, when he's standing there looking towards the sheriff, you see behind him there's a bus on the other side of the river. And I always think that's the bus from the movie The Final Terror, which, uh, <laughs> which ta- is Andrew Davis's first film. And he directed The Fugitive, oh. which David Jansen was in. Now, I don't know that that's true. Because the years aren't right, but I just like the thought that across the street there's a slasher film happening across yeah. <laughs> the river. There's a slasher happening. And there's a werewolf film happening on this side. Oh, but oh, may I just mention just in yes. the when when they when we see him talking to all the sort of rednecky type guys, everything's close up on everyone. You see everyone really mm-hmm. well. But this opening shot here, notice how far away we are. Now part of it is showing the grounds. But notice how, like, this is the guy in charge. And we even get a little bit farther away right there. And and it's it's this weird thing where when we're meeting the guy in charge, we keep our distance for a little bit. We're far away from him. He isn't as Noah. But th- then we were able to go in right there after a, after a bit of time. But I just like the fact that all the poorer whites are there right up in the camera with the sheriff. But when the rich guy shows up, he gets some space. That's so interesting. We And then we move in eventually. But we, we sort of... We give we give that him some respect. I don't know if it's meant to be respect. I don't know if it's meant to be signifying that he's different. Well, he's he's dwarfed by the house too, right? In that True. shot, and it's it's about the history, right? It's about this kind of idea of of where he is in the world of the Rodance, and at the end of like this great lineage, and he's sort of living in the shadow of the men who were running the plantation before yes. him, a and b the men who gave him this. Uh, illness that he has um and it's sort of like it's not generational trauma but it is sort of about the way generations feed into the person that you are to become or the person that you want to reject as we see here with barbara rush who plays um a character who actually has to leave the island to even have any form of autonomy or independence and when she does it it is a sign of disrespect for Andrew, played by Bradford Dillman. He's not, he actually tells everybody that she's been sick and that's why she had to come back. But we find out later in this great scene that she had been living out of wedlock with a man and he was not of um, their social circle. And so um, there's a lot of really interesting stuff happening just between these two. And, and watching David Jansen just like um, sort of going back and forth between them when he talks to Andrew Bradford Dillman has his sort of best kind of haughty, I'm monitoring everything that's being said. And then when, when, when Whitaker looks at um, uh, uh, Louise, who is called Wheezy throughout the book. Mm. And of course, all you think of is the Jeffersons, but yeah. this isn't quite the same. They already moved on up. Um, but whenever he looks at Louise, there's a, there's a different look. Like he's like, if you watch him holding his hat, like when he looks at when he looks at Bradford Dillman, he's holding his hat. But when he looks at her, he's kind of doing like almost an Oliver Hardy, like twiddling his fingers at, yeah. at, at times, like a light flirting going Here on. Here we go. Here we go. The smile. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that, <laughs> that's such a great smile. And every once in a while, like like saying like in Harry O, you would get a big smile from him. And it's it's, it's so it's it's nice. He's got a good smile. He does. I'm I'm really happy. Uh, that he's in this and he is bringing that level of warmth that I think this character really needs because Andrew is such a remote character. 
-hmm. you know, and also you're dealing with um, a lot of people who I think are putting up errors. Of course, the doctor, we find out, uh, has got lots of secrets. Um, And so he has to be like sort of the everyman that we can sort of put ourselves inside of. And he does Mm -hmm. a great job of that in every facet. But 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 the Bradford Dillman. <laughs> performance here to me is really understated and it really stands out yeah. to me as the best in the film. And I don't want to rank them. That sounds awful. But like for me, it's the most intriguing mm-hmm. because, because Andrew can never really reveal these things inside of him, but you see these moments that Bradford Dillman projects that are really, really well-defined. Like when um, they're at the bar and Louise says, you know, I've already told him why I'm back. And you can see mm-hmm. this look on his face, like, Oh, you ruined everything. And then it goes away. Mm-hmm. And he goes back to being like that. I'm the guy that runs the town, and yes. um, and it's just so beautifully done. And it's interesting because Bradford Dillman, um, was had a very self-deprecating sort of reflection on his own career, and he talked a lot about making TV movies as a way to put uh, food on the table. Mm-hmm. You know, his passion wasn't necessarily in the made-for-TV movie, but he gave 110% in everything he yeah. was in. Yeah. And there's nobody's phoning this in here, and it's mm-hmm. just such a spectacular for me okay. performance. And. And can I just say, <laughs> you set a film in a swamp. Pardon me, you set a film in a swamp. You won me over already. And it, 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 you know, we don't even have to be like swamp thing deep in the swamp. You can just like I've always I, I grew up in uh, Western New York State, and you wouldn't think there are swamps there, but there are some swamps there. And in fact, when I used to drive to college back and forth from from Rochester, New York to Ithaca, New York, there were like three or four spots where there were swamps. And if I was in the mood, I would pull over and go visit the swamp just for a few minutes. Why not? And I would stand around and I would think, I want to jump in there. I want to find out what's in there. You know, just like the trees sticking out, the branches and the Mm -hmm. everything. You're like, what is going on? I love a swamp ladies and germs so yeah well you know john davis chandler who plays tom jr here he's there with royal dano on the left a really famous Mm -hmm. character actor Uh, yes chandler came from uh west virginia and so he probably grew up in sort of like uh the very southern kind Mm -hmm. of you know mossy oppressive heat and i think part of it too is i was always looking for quicksand Oh, well, who isn't? Yeah, I found quicksand once, but it wasn't as impressive as I thought it would be. <laughs> I don't even want to know. It terrifies that's for me. another. That's yeah. another. That's another. <laughs> but... But yeah, Chandler was a really interesting character actor. He always played uh, kind of the bad guy. And mm-hmm. um, his mom actually did a paper, uh, an interview in the local newspaper there in, I think it was Charleston, West Virginia. And she said that she loved seeing him in these movies because he couldn't have been a sweeter boy. And, and, <laughs> oh, he, boy, and, boy. and he was not anything like the characters that he played, which I thought was just <laughs> the most adorable thing I've ever That's seen. That's fantastic. <laughs> oh, and, um, and I think somewhere around here... Um, oh, there's oh, Sarah. There now, if, if you look on the left there you'll see the junction it's junction 67 and i just wanted to talk briefly about where this was um uh, where this was made um and that's so that's junction 67 and junction 67 goes through uh baton rouge near um the mississippi river and actually i think goes into mississippi the state and becomes another um interstate um or junction um and this was shot in uh um i believe it was burnside louisiana yeah. and Clint- clinton louisiana which are both in the vicinity of baton rouge now the, the thing i like about it is that baton rouge is sort of if you look at a map of louisiana baton rouge is not quite northeast but northeast ish and this is set the movie set in marsh island and there is a marsh island but Marsh Island is underneath Louisiana. So if you go to the bottom of Louisiana, you get the starting of the Gulf. And then there's an island, sort of um, a sausage 
sort of shaped island, and that's Marsh Island. And the thing about Marsh Island is that you can only get there uh, via boat. I'm sure you can probably parachute in, but you can only get there via a boat or, or I guess a hovercraft or a yacht. You, there, there's no there's no road in. There's no place to land a plane. You can only get there by boat or swimming, but it's like I think it's like 20 miles or something. Um, and the population, according to the last census, the human population is zero. No one oh. lives on Marsh Island. So so it's funny because when they said Marsh Island and I looked at the map, I thought, oh, okay, so he's driving across the water and the rich people are on the island. But no, Marsh Island is actually a town which is more or less Baton Rouge, which is a little further north by the Mississippi. And we'll talk about the mansion where everything, a plantation where everything is set a little bit later, I think. But um, but that's sort of where this was made, around the Baton Rouge area, although I find that Marsh Island thing rather fascinating. Do you think that maybe they left after they found out there was a werewolf living there? <laughs> On Marsh Island? They're just yeah. in Baton Rouge? Yeah, I would think so. I bet everyone cleared out afterwards. <laughs> As you do. Um, yes. So I just want to mention, this is John Berardino um, mm -hmm. playing Dr. Druton, and I just want to talk about him briefly because he is one of the original cast members of General Hospital. He played Dr. Steve Hardy. Oh, yeah. yeah, he started in 1963. He stayed there for almost the entire um, time he was alive, uh, only leaving right before he passed away because he got too sick to go back on television, which is unfortunate. But um, he was also a baseball player. He played for the Cleveland Indians, and he also played for the Pittsburgh Pirates. And and I believe he played in a World Series at one point. So he has this really fascinating uh, background. Um, but he ended up only doing a few roles on television. General Hospital really kind of set it up for him that he didn't have to do too much work. But um, he appeared in other projects. Uh, he, I think my favorite thing, aside from Moon of the Wolf, that he appeared in, which happened the year before this in 1971. Um, it was a made-for-TV movie titled Do Not Fold, Spindle, or Mutilate. Mm. And we may talk about that a little later later. Uh, but um, it's neither here nor there, but he's great in it. He plays sort of the befuddled cop who has to deal with the four women that have somehow lured a serial killer um, into their midst. And it's kind of like a black comedy um, that's great. And he's he does a really fine comic performance in that. I'm used to seeing him here as kind of like the authoritarian doctor character. Never as flawed. Um, this is a mo way more flawed than Steve Hardy ever got on General Hospital, to my memory. Um, and it's a great performance, but uh, I just, I love him, and I'm so happy to see him in anything. Well, we could talk about when this, since I said that uh, pre previous uh, movie, Do Not Fold, Turn and Mutilate, was 1971. This originally aired on September 26, 1972. It is, as I said, an ABC movie of the week. It did really well in the ratings, and interestingly enough, um, David Jansen was set up to be a major player in the ABC movie of the week in this season. And we can talk a little bit about that, but, um, I will tell you what it ran against. It ran against, um, an episode of Bonanza that featured Ron Howard. Um, this was on NBC, uh, an episode of the bold ones, uh, the new doctors, that version of it that had Richard Basart in it. And that was a supposed to be a really dark episode from what I've read. Then it also on CBS ran against an episode of Hawaii Five-0 with William Shatner as the guest star and, um, and a TV movie movie that aired right after that called Deadly Harvest with Richard Boone and I think Patty Duke is in it yes, and Michael yes. Constantine and um so anyway M Moon of the Wolf would end up doing really well in the ratings I mean really well it came in number 17 um out of 237 made for tv movies to air in the 72 73 oh, season wow. with a 23.8 slash 37 so all that means is that about 37 percent of homes with televisions who are watching tv that night tuned in to watch 
mm-hmm. Moon of the Woods, which, which, which is over a third of the audience, which, which blows great. my mind when you think about it. Yeah. Yeah, Deadly Harvest didn't do quite so well. I can't remember where it fell. I think it was number 60. It got a 19.4 slash 32, which is means the other third of America. So there's one third watching everything else. And <laughs> and a third of them basically tuned in for Deadly Harvest and then another third for Moon of the Wolf. So they were torn between uh, the two films. But um, wow. that just kind of shows like the audience. I always like to preference um, when I'm talking about TV movies with how big the audiences were. And I always use mm-hmm. shows like Walking Dead or even a show like Fringe. Those are very popular TV shows that are more modern. And sometimes they get um, 2 million to 10 million people watching and they're considered pretty good audience turnouts. But in the 70s, that would have been like, oh my God, we have to cancel this. Nobody yeah, watched. That would have been gone. Yeah. Yeah. After, dead after 13. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, so he really like came in here and he did another movie, David Jansen, this year called The Longest Night, which ended up somewhere in the top 25, I think number 22. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a story about a woman who'd been buried alive and after she'd oh. been kidnapped and, um, and somebody's holding ransom and it's up to him to find her. And that was a huge nice. film too. He He's always saving the day, isn't he? I mean, whether he's the fugitive, Richard Diamond, Harry O., he was uh, always saving the day, right, right up to right up to the end. Superdome. I don't, I don't actually. Two minute, no, two minute warning. He was actually kind of a jerk in two minute warning, Um, but then everyone was kind of a jerk in two minute warning. Um, But here, here, and here's a scene where I think I think it shows the. um, Look at how she's immaculate, and he's a bit. He he isn't as disheveled as he is in some some points. I don't know, like the what 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 are your thoughts on the shirt button down? I'm here for it. Okay, all right, because I, I I like it too. I um I I almost uh I I I um I it's it's I I can see why he does it because um it's obviously it's a very sweaty uh, place, but he's actually not well. No, okay. Maybe he's a little sweaty right there. I, I take that back. But but here we have this lovely scene um, with the two of them in here. And again, notice the way the scene starts where we're at a distance. We could we could be right up there with them mm. immediately. But for some reason, the director, I think it, he, he's given the Rodanths a little space. Like he's even look at the there's a light going by there slowly and he's kind of casually moving in. Oh, now she, there she is. And she looks great. I'm not sure about her hair, though, but uh, that could be just me. No, I, everything about Barbara Rush to me is absolute perfection. Uh, okay. You'll never hear me ever, ever, <laughs> ever, just not. She's a goddess. Um, and she's a stunning actress. But I wanted, you mentioned the director, and we should talk a little bit about him because oh, yeah. he's pretty high caliber. So we have like our basic, uh, I don't want to say basic, we have our journeymen that get hired a lot for television. And then we have people who show up who have done a lot of theatrical work first and then kind of move in the TV movie. And that's where I would put Dan Petrie. Um, so he is a pretty accomplished filmmaker, um, but he's also the patriarch of a Hollywood family dynasty. Several of his family members work in the industry, including his wife, Dorth- Dorothea. She was uh, an accomplished actress, producer, and writer. He has two sons, one who went on to become a director himself, and the other one served as president of the Writers Guild at one point. And so Petrie's career began in total earnest. Um, he directed a lot of anthology shows in the early 1950s, but his live TV and anthology kind of fell out of favor. He moved between the big and small screen and is behind some really big films. I mentioned Raisin in the Sun, which stars mm. Claudia McNeil, who plays Sarah in this Fort Apache, the Bronx. He did oh. Cocoon, the return, the sequel to Cocoon. <laughs> and um, his TV career was stellar. Um, he was nominated for Emmys for The Man in the City, The Execution of Raymond Graham, which starred um, Jeff Fahey. And uh, it's a really interesting kind of dark film. Um, very dramatic. He did A Town Torn Apart in 1993. My Name is Bill W., which I think is the sequel to Bill. Um, and he did a children's program, which he won an Emmy for, called Mark Twain and Me. Uh, that was in 1992. He, and he produced that as well. Um, 
Um, he did a movie called Eleanor and Franklin, which starred Jane Alexander, which I believe she won an Emmy for. And he did a miniseries called The Dollmaker, which starred Jane Fonda, which is one of my oh, favorite yeah. miniseries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he also, of course, did Sybil with Sally oh, Field. Yes. And we may talk about... Um, I think Petrie's really good with women, and we will talk more about Barbara Rush mm-hmm. towards the end. But... Um, but he also dabbled in genre. So just briefly, I just want to let you know, in 1971, mm-hmm. he made um, an excellent small screen TV movie. Uh, it's called A Howling in the Woods. It starred mm-hmm. Barbara Eden, and it actually reunited her with her, her I Dream of Jeannie co-star Larry Hagman. Um, and he did a movie called Mousy with Kirk Douglas about an unstable man nicknamed Mousy who seeks revenge against his ex-wife. It's a great cat and mousy kind of film. I think that's where the title part really comes from. <laughs> but he worked with Barbara Rush before. He directed her in a 1960 movie titled The Bramble Bush. Um, and he worked with Jeffrey Lewis uh, about two years after this in a TV movie western titled The Gun in the Pulpit, which might have starred Steve Forrest. Oh. I can't remember. And um, Petrie and the screenwriter of this, Alvin Sap- Sapinsley, I always have a hard time saying his name, they worked together on a few projects, including a 1950 episode of Armstrong Circle Theater titled Fred Allen's Sketchbook. They did a 54 episode of the Motorola, Motorola Television Hour titled Nightmare in Algiers. And they worked on several episodes of another anthology show called The Elgin Hour. And all of those happened, um, The Elgin Hour, in 1955. So they have a pretty interesting working relationship. And here comes where we're going to see Dylan yes. really like bringing in that sort of like, I'm going to sort of let I'm you see what I'm feeling. Yes. But I'm also yeah, I have to hold up this persona. Did, did you did you did you hear what he said to the general? I love the extras in this. Yes, they're, they're so great looking, and they're a nice mix of guys too, with fun mustaches. You're bald. You're this. But but when he walks by them and they stop for a second, almost stand to attention, he says, "Please, gentlemen, don't let me interrupt your pleasures." That's right. Yo, the dialogue <laughs> okay. in this is okay. so good. Okay, okay sir. <laughs> Thanks yeah. very much. We're gonna keep shooting pool. There's so, also yeah. an interesting moment where they're they're going to hunt the dogs. Yes, the and, wild dogs. Yes, and he's leading them yeah, with his yeah. truck goes first. And I thought that was a really interesting thing because I was even surprised to see him as part of the hunt. Yes. In yeah. the book, it's it's actually there's a huge the, the 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 dog hunt is huge that leads into another huge section with two crazy brothers who are out for something or other. I don't even remember now. There was so much going on in it. But here the dog, the dog hunt is sort of, you'll see it in a little bit and they'll mention it. You'll see Andrew there. And yeah, it is kind of surprising to see him. But I can also see maybe he, maybe that's one of his pleasures, you know? And they're like, <laughs> please, sir, enjoy your pleasure shooting wild dogs. The wild dog thing is interesting because in the book, there's a lot of wild dog stuff. In here, the wild dogs are sort of vaguely mentioned. Like in the, in the, in the book, it's said that when the girl is killed at the beginning, Um, She has the bruise on her cheek, her throat is torn out, but then one of her arms has been ripped off, and it's, like, gone. And they think that's probably wild dogs afterwards. And so there's, it's, 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 it's always fun, like, because I watched this film, oh, I've watched this film many times, but I watched this film maybe three times before I read the book a few days ago, and it's, there's a lot, there's a lot of difference in it, and, and it's, it's, it's always so fascinating to me to, the um to to think like the writer who has to adapt it who has to sit down okay i gotta take a through line through this and i gotta make it 74 minutes and they do a pretty darn good job of it i think um and i um just one more thing i'll start blabbing about the book but i always wonder what's in that shack behind them Mm. there i'm I'm always thinking what's in there they got because their house is kind of forgive me shack ish yes so now they have another shack behind them. I'm dying to know what's in there. Like that's where they make the fritters or something. I don't know. <laughs> the that's moonshine. Yes, exactly. Oh, it's okay, still. Yeah. 
Yeah, if we're going to like totally stereotype. But uh, we were talking about how this movie plays into this kind of bridge between the way the South was portrayed on film and television and the way it would end up being portrayed. And I don't know if this is a good place to maybe talk about the rural yeah. purge, which I know you have a better background on if you want to kind of start to give us some context. Oh, sure. Uh, uh, yeah, throughout the, the 60s, you had your shows like Andy Griffith, uh, which became Mayberry RFD, and you had Beverly Hillbillies, Petticoat Junction, Green Acres, um, uh, Hee Haw, um, the Jim Neighbors show, mm. um, uh, and there, there were there were other shows there too, but th- those are sort of the main ones, and, and westerns, a lot of westerns too. I mean, it's surprising that once you get past the rural purge, which was 71, the only westerns that are still around are Bonanza and Gunsmoke. And Bonanza's almost over because Hoss has just died. And Gunsmoke is only there because the president of CBS, uh, as, as, as the story goes, is his, his wife loved the show and he kept it on the air. And um, so when you get 1971, they canceled, uh, as Pat Buttram said, everything with a tree in it. <laughs> and that was because of uh, All in the Family and such, because All in the Family was so big and it was so different. It was shot on cheap video. It was it was in your face. Ever the laugh? Well, the audience was like cranked up to eleven, and it was it was it was now it was exciting, and and so uh, CBS um, was left behind, being kind of the um, uh, well well actually any I, I say CBS they were they were the main one, but any show that had that was rural in any fashion got canned in basically the first half of nineteen seventy one. And so shows that were even continued on, like Beverly Hillbillies or Green Acres, just got canceled. They all got canceled. And so it became when, by the time you got to the end of 71, and start, well, I mean, start of 72 is Sanford and Son. And you begin, the Norman Lear shows begin pouring in, the Mary Tyler Moore shows begin, uh, productions, not just the Mary Tyler Moore show, you know, Bob Newhart and such. They begin pouring in. And, um, uh, and the Rural Purge sort of, yeah, there was nothing rural going on on network TV anymore. And then you see something like this. Yeah. And it's also interesting because what else happened after this and David Jansen's attached to that as well, is that there was a proliferation of cop shows because they had, they started kind of focusing on urban audiences um, at a certain point, I think around 70, 71. And so you just saw at one point there were like so many cop shows that the critics were like, like they were with slashers, like, Oh my God, I have to watch another cop show. (laughs) And so I think Harry O, unfortunately, because it only lasted a couple seasons, I think it kind of Mm -hmm. fell into like, uh, the beginning, it already started, and they were already kind of brimming yes. overly so with all of these shows. And then Harry O shows up, and as good as it was, it was just kind of like with Bronk. I mean, there's a lot of short-lived shows, and Kojak that did <laughs> much Bronk, better. Yeah. Bronk was great. and um, Jack Ballance, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so you have a lot of this kind of like mixture of stuff. But then in the big screen, like the the South took a real dark turn with Deliverance. And then we saw a lot of movies that kind of fell. Speaking of um, The Final Terror is a pretty good example of that. Like kind of like stereotyping these sort of people who lived in these more pastoral, desolate kind of locations as being bumpkins or violent yes. or this and, and that. Right. And, and, then, and then alongside like at the drive in sort of more, you had like the, a lot of moonshine films and things like that like the exploitation yeah. films even even like what was it um uh the 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 one um uh, burt reynolds was in i was a white gator. lightning Get, white oh. lightning yes that's a great yeah that's a, and there was a sequel it was a gator or not hooper I, I forget what the but yeah white lightning for example is is, is one of those very southern very sweaty yeah. yeah so this movie ends up being like that bridge between the two and so it's such an interesting like 
adaptation and of course there were other southern set this isn't the only one but the fact that there's even location shooting is like a big deal tv movies didn't always get the luxury of that and uh, one of the things i found when i was doing my research was that it looked like production began in july of 1972 oh and it aired of course in september so that's interesting because uh you know a lot of tv movies don't even have that many months to put a movie together uh for instance crowhaven farm i think they started production in august and the tv movie premiered in october i mean like that's how fast these films mm -hmm. are turned around and because uh, there being so many of them have been produced at this point especially now because this was a huge season they uh <laughs> the abc movie of the week had really already established itself yes. And there was there was like 20, 30 million people yeah. watching on any given night. And, and the so, NBC mystery movie, mm, I think, premiered this season, too, with Columbo, mm, McCloud, and McMillan and Wife. I'm so glad you brought that up because Everett Chambers, who produced this, uh, was one of the producers of the two, uh, the oh. Mystery Wheel movies. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So so there's another connection there. So like when I talk about a family affair, you can see how all these things are becoming yes. tied up with each other. But I know we did want to talk a little bit about the house. Yes, yes, please. Or... Yeah. or I, Let's we'll talk. You you remember the pronunciation of it. I keep getting okay, it wrong. Yeah, it's the Humus House Plantation. Yes. It's located in Burnside, Louisiana. It is thirty two. I'm sorry. It's thirty two thousand acres. I think total twelve. No, twelve thousand acres. Pardon me, of land with thirty five acres running directly alongside the Mississippi River. The house yes. itself is on ten acres of land. Or I'm sure. I'm sorry. I'm messing up my notes. The house <laughs> itself is ten acres, mm. which means it's actually one eighth of a mile. So it's just yeah. like behemoth house Sprawling. yeah i mean you can see the three huge stories and then there's a fourth one on top i'd like to see you can't really make out with the four. i'd like to if it had like one of those widow's walks around it that would be really yeah. cool but you can't you can't quite see but this i love this how it, i'm almost i'm almost convinced this is a comedy moment here just like as they're walking they're walking and all of a sudden there's a table with lemonade on it <laughs> in the middle of the just season. waiting and the thing is we never in the book they mention a day made and and other servants but in this we never see any servants yeah she actually complains about how run down the house is which yes. might be an important point too because like it's for, it's like everything is smoke and mirrors in andrew's life isn't it mm -hmm. so like even the house itself is falling apart now the house in real life uh was constructed in the early 1800s and went through many changes throughout the years um most recently it was in the last century i think the 1940s um an architect bought it so he kind of remodeled mm -hmm. a lot of the house he turned it from a classic revival mansion to a williamsburg federal style country home Ooh. but in 2005 the restoration began to actually take all of the different restorations and merge them into like one new construction uh -huh. to reflect the history of the house so uh this is a very important house it's been used in different things um i know uh it was used in hush hush sweet charlotte mandingo it was the house in mandingo oh wow <laughs> and in a woman called moses which makes it two polar opposite films there so yes. um yeah and this is i think this is clinton right and it looks almost exactly so, yeah. the same as it does now i looked at some shots of the streets now i don't know if the interiors are the town or not because they actually destroy some of this we're going to see here and i don't know yes. if they wanted to destroy the jail or not I, the, the thing that makes me think this might be in studio later is that green mm. color that yeah. 70s green that you got on like any like in Colombo, if he walked down a hallway in like the in the police station, or like he went to the DMV, it was this green that's in um in the in the cell. There's this specific, that's that green you can see behind uh, uh, Jeffrey Lewis is this kind of um, 70s green, first half of the 70s. I don't know what what it is or why they loved it so much. Maybe they thought it photographed great. I don't know, but it just looks like green. 
Yeah, it's definitely very 70s. I'll call it puce, even though I don't know what puce is, but it just sounds very, very <laughs> 70s. I think that could 70s. be right, though. Actually, I think, I think that could be, could be correct. I wanted to talk a little bit about Everett Chambers, if you don't no. mind, just right here, since you talked about Columbo. Um, he was primarily an episodic producer, but in 1972 to 76, the only things he worked on were TV movies and The Mystery Wheel. So he worked on Columbo, Heck, Ramsey, McLeod, McMillan and Wife, the classics. Um, but I want to tell you what his TV movie career looked like between 72 and 76. So he did, this was his first of what would be a long series. He did Trouble Comes to Town, which I believe Dan Petrie directed, the director of this. The Great American Beauty Contest, which is one of um, Farrah Fawcett's first um, on-screen, like, really meaty performances. She's great in it. The Girl Most Likely to with Stalker Channing came out in 73. That's fantastic. Can Ellen Be Saved, which is about occult deprogramming which is a really interesting movie they only come out at night uh which i believe is a thriller twin detectives which i think starred two guys from the twins from hee-haw whose name is eluding me now it was a pilot <laughs> future cop and street oh. killing which starred andy griffith talking about the rural purge and mayberry rfd so he did a phenomenal amount of work just in like a very short period of time and he actually wrote a book called producing tv movies uh which is an insider's guide on in how to make a television film um, and uh, and so he's just this really interesting filmmaker. I don't know that um, he's necessarily driven by politics or you can pull themes together from what he does, but he's really good at, I think, making these things that have this very, oh my gosh, Moon of the Wolf is about werewolves. Let's sit down and have a good time. And also, hey, I'm seeing a lot of stuff about class commentary and or racial tensions like in trouble comes to town you know what i mean and so yes. i think he's just really good at what he did but i think it's so interesting that you keep bringing up colombo because i feel like maybe there's some influencing here on his possibly but uh may i just two things um one we get a great point of view werewolf point of view bit oh, yeah. when he's out in the street and it's it's great because um this was before steadicam steadicam was rocky which is several years away. So this is a guy with uh, a guy or a gal with a with a like a big camera, like or or maybe they could have had a tiny like Bell and Howell or Bolex, but probably a bigish camera on their shoulder, and that's why it's so shaky mm. when you're seeing it because it doesn't have the um, the things that the Steadicam has. And um, I also every time I see that calendar behind the deputy, I try to figure out when. Um, what month this is, what year this is. And I, I, I need to look because the book is set, and I got it right here. The book is set in 1938. So so this is clearly not 1938. Yeah. Um, not with these outfits. No. And, uh, um, and yeah, there you get a really good, good, good green right there. Yeah. Also, while he's still here, um, Jeffrey Lewis, I guess for horror fans, would probably be best known for Salem's Lot. Yes. Yeah, and he was this great, great character actor. Yeah. He was and in he... Human Experiments, right? Wasn't he? Oh, I don't I... remember. I have seen Human Experiments, mm -hmm. but I, I'm not recalling mm -hmm. him in that. But he mm -hmm. was a terrific actor, and we didn't get to talk too much about him. But he's no, but really he's... great in this. A very complicated he's... character. And and I love the fact that they do very much. It's like a, a very much like an Otis Andy Griffith kind of thing where we put him in the cell, but we don't have to lock the cell. He's not going anywhere. I think there's something kind yeah. of uh, there's something so charming about that. I don't think you'd see that in like I don't think Barney Miller would have ever done no. that. <laughs> um, no. But it's it's kind of nice that you see it here. And there is a bit more blood than I, one might expect. Um, they they kind of lather it on there a bit. They do. Which... Sometimes TV movies go there and mm. it's a little shocking and surprising. Um, just every so often they, they normally rely heavily on suggestion and mm -hmm. it's not really that surprising to me that they would choose a movie with a lot of Southern Gothic 
um, undertones to it because the Gothic was a really big mainstay in made for TV uh -huh. movies. Cause yes. it was a lot about like atmosphere uh -huh. and you could have like sexual undercurrents, but you didn't necessarily have to show anything cause it was about the tension. Right. Yes. And also a lot about repression and oppression like we're seeing here. And, um, and so it's a kind of the perfect device, but they also do bloody it up a bit. Um, and at yeah. the end, oh, there's a little bit more blood with the Bradford Doma character. That's yes, a little yes. shocking. I wasn't expecting to see that. Yeah. yeah. And you, I, something just occurred to me as I'm watching everyone and I'm thinking of everyone sweating all the time and I'm thinking, um, what, what are those things they, they put on the fan? You know, where they always have oh, those yeah, streamers. Tables. Yeah. What, what are those, what are those, is that, is that just for fun? Is that like a, a parade on your fan to make it more fun or something? I never figured out why they do that. Because I know, like in in movies, like when the air conditioning turns off, it's like they're not moving. But but then they still have them on in movies where the fan never stops. So I, I never quite figure that out. But I just realized too that not only is the book set in the '30s, the book is set around Christmas time. Oh, interesting. So I don't know if everyone's as sweaty. I would I would I don't know what the climate is like down there. Um, in the winter, it's the probably winter. a lot nicer. Um, yeah. But I again, I think that. Uh, Saplinsky, Alvin Saplinsky, who adapted the novel, I think that he was very purposeful about this idea of oppressive heat because it yes. ties into the the way he decided to direct can't. the characters, right? You yeah, know? yeah, you can't you can't get away from the heat. No one's got the AC. You can't. It's always hot, and so it's like yeah. no matter what you're doing, you're always sweating. And so there's like there's like it's it's oppressive enough having a a loop guru running around ripping everybody apart, but you can't stop sweating. Yeah, well, like oh, the tensions, the yeah, the, it's, the tensions are always going to be, like, much more extreme in this kind of weather because it's inescapable, you know. So that's just, I don't know, a really interesting a choice. on, And I didn't realize it was set over Christmas. So, yeah, a lot of neat changes happened in this yeah. adaptation. Yeah, I um, I was going to talk a little bit about um, werewolf movies, but I oh. just... I. If 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 you don't if you yeah please if if you don't mind me taking just say I just, I just wanted to sneak in because would would you, I, I I was going to mention werewolf movies in general but would you yeah. like to to discuss the the seventies ones real quick or or why don't you give us some background in werewolf movies in general because my forte is more in television and I want okay. you to like, kind of give me some context oh sure yeah now uh, there there is I do love this moment here where the the streets are almost completely empty he pulls up and and Whitaker says to him they're probably about eight or nine guns pointed at your head right now which I. Mm -hmm. I absolutely love because it's perfect because you don't have to hire extras, but <laughs> but just that moment is like intense. Um, but I mean, the, the first werewolf movie I know of is 1913's The Werewolf, which mm -hmm. I think is lost. There is a 1915 movie, which I think the BFI has a copy of called Heba the Snake Woman, Ooh. which is a, a were snake. It's an Aztec priestess becoming a were snake and killing um, her people she doesn't like uh but the, but the first the big one is what mid-30s is the werewolf of london with henry hull um uh which which is good which is actually pretty good uh then that there's she wolf of london which actually is kind of a trick it's not a full-on werewolf film but then your first big one is 1941's uh the wolfman of course with lon cheney jr that's your classic with claude rains too with your classic your big hairy head and, and face and he's running around like dressed in a nice outfit but with big hairy hands and claws and ripping people apart and running through fog-filled places and they're gypsies um saying um you know uh, speaking about the wolf bane blooming and claude rains has the silver cane and uh you get after that you get of course one of my all-time favorites frankenstein meets the wolf man 
uh, followed by House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula, where the character of Lawrence Talbot, who is Lon Chaney Jr.'s character, is cured of being a werewolf, which is awesome. Uh, but then he's a werewolf again in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, which I do recommend, which is sure, quite a lovely classic. film. Very funny. Uh, and then throughout the 50s, there aren't, uh, there's not much going on. There's a, a Mexican film called, which I think has Lon Chaney uh, Jr. in it called, is it Screaming Werewolf? There's something of the Screaming Werewolf. I forgot the beginning of the name, but it's um, it's more of a comedy. Uh, then you go into the 60s and you get uh, The Curse of the Werewolf, the Hammer film werewolf one with oliver reed and that's the that's the thing with the werewolf movies is that you get you get you get like uh you sometimes you get werewolf movies which are just full-on um crazy guy becomes a werewolf and it's killing everyone but sometimes they're sort of richer than that and there's more depth to them and curse of the werewolf is like that and then you um head into the end of the 60s and then you get um paul nashi over in spain making the valdemar daninsky werewolf films and he made a ton of them and then you get things like uh, Sabrina and the Groovy Ghoulies, a cartoon, which has a character, Wolfman character. You get um, the uh, – oh, well, well, I guess now we're wandering into the 70s, so we can talk about the 70s TV movies. Because we also get – in the 70s, we get movies like The Werewolf of uh, Washington. Mm, yes. We get The Boy Who Cried Werewolf. We get The Beast Must Die. And I'm, oh, I'm I love that one. The- yeah, and, and we get um, at the uh, well, no, no, the Howling is nineteen eighty. Sorry, uh, but but we get we get a lot of um, fun werewolf movies throughout the seventies, and we also get several fun werewolf TV movies. If you wanted to talk about um, them, yeah, let's take them. There's just a handful of them, but let's take them in chronological order. And a little bit later, we'll talk about just kind of monster movies. I think um, because this was a big year for monster movies um, yes. on TV. But the first one that I'm aware of, anyway, that to come out of the gate was after this one. I should say the first one after Moon of the Wolf is Scream of the Wolf, which mm-hmm. was a Dan Curtis uh, production written by Richard Matheson. It aired on January 16th, 1974. It was a big hit. It was number 23 for the season. It had a 38% share, so 38% of America tuned in to watch Clint Walker and Peter Graves try to hunt down a werewolf uh, <laughs> with Joanne Flug and Phil Carey sort of in the background watching them do it. Um, so the movie itself is a really interesting twist on the werewolf idea. Mm-hmm. It's that it's about a big game hunter who uh, tries to track down a killer wolf, but they begin to think that maybe it's not a wolf at all. It's an animal that can take human form. So it's the reverse. Yes. Right. Which is really fascinating. And I don't want to be too spoilery about it because that would kind of ruin the twists that are happening in the film. But I thought it was a really neat. Now, did you watch this one? I did. I did. Yeah. I, I, I seen it once a long time ago, but I watched mm-hmm, it like a week ago. It's, it's, it's great. I mean, did I see it right? Is, does it say story by Dave Chase? Correct. Would that, would that be oh, David no, I'm sorry, Chase? It's Case. It's Case. case and it's based Case. off his story. Oh, yeah. I, right. I thought okay. that too, because of the, the, uh, Kolchak, um, okay. stuff, but, uh, which we may talk about later, but, uh, no, it's a man named David Case. The story was okay. called the hunter. I, yeah, I had to do a double take too, but yeah, it's a really interesting <laughs> sort of flip, but it's really about maybe sort of the same as here. It's not like a class mm-hmm. issue thing, but Peter Graves and Clint Walker are sort of cut from the same cloth and it's sort of about the tensions felt between them. And here we can sort of see the way the sheriff is going up against Andrew and there's yeah. a sort of yin yang as well. Mm. I don't know. Would you say that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I would, and 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 you're right. The um, the uh, the the sort of twisteroo of what might be going on actually reminded me of a, um, and I, I won't ruin this either. But one of the more recent, uh, well, well, within the last five or six years, one of the X Files episodes, 
uh, when they came back for their two-season return. There's an episode of that that kind of has a similar sort of twist. Um, and it's just a, when you realize sort of what they're doing in Scream of the Wolf, you're like, oh, nice. All right. Yeah. And they, they, they really are sort of tweaking – uh, the stuff, and this was the decade where they did that. Uh, this is this is there's a lot of stuff like that in here. Yeah, it's it's a really kind of cool little movie. And then following that is a real oddity uh, called The Werewolf of Woodstock. Hey. Uh, yeah, originally aired on January twenty fourth, nineteen seventy five. Now it was part of the ABC Wide World Mystery, which meant it aired at eleven thirty at night. And there's no ratings that I know of for it. Um, it was directed by John Moffat, who does mostly variety and award shows. And I think that's because it was a Dick Clark production, and Dick Clark yes. probably just used it with a director that he knew he could rely on. It starred Michael Parks. Marriott Hartley and uh, hopefully I'll say his name right, T.G. Andrews from Mod Squad. Um, and this is basically about like sort of an electrical accident. I think it's lightning that strikes a man who lives in Woodstock, New York, and it somehow turns him into a werewolf. Yes. And he decides to like kind of stalk and attack a rock band uh, with Andrew Stevens being kind of at the head of it. Oh, I, it just could be Meredith McRae. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot. No, She's... Just because I was just thinking, and I was just thinking of the the rural purge as I was yeah. watching. And I thought, oh, of course she was. Um, she was Billy Joe. So no, it's Meredith McRae. Yeah, it's a pretty wild movie, and it's actually nuts. It, yeah, it feels like they're making it up as they go along. <laughs> There's a connection uh, that we will hopefully get a chance to point out between the two. If not, we'll refer back to it after it yes. happens. But just think, werewolf on a dune buggy, and you'll know where we're going. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a, it's a. Pre I don't know what else to say about that one except it's a lot of fun and it's really unique. It's yeah, it's it's like seventy minutes long. It goes real real fast. It's meant to be. It's meant to take place right after Woodstock. But what one of the things with locations is like the joy of of Moon of the Wolf is when they're in the swamps. You know we're not in L.A. or Southern yeah. California. How do you know we're in Southern California and Werewolf of Woodstock? Because everywhere you are, there are big hills behind you. Yeah, that means you're in L.A. and that means they're probably shooting Mash. On the other side, <laughs> so, yeah, so yeah, so so I'm sorry. So uh, what was next? Which one was oh, next? then the last one I know of from the '70s was called Death Moon, which originally aired on uh, May 31st, 1978. It did not do so well in the ratings, although it did get a good share. It it ended up at number 86 um, in the Nielsen's for the season with a 30 percent share, which is still not bad. Um, it starred Robert Foxworth, France Nguyen, Deborah Lee Scott, a favorite of mine, Joe Penny, yeah, and Barbara Trentum. Um, so that's a really interesting one because it's sort of about this guy who has kind of like, I guess they they think he's under too much stress at work. So uh, they tell him to take a vacation and he goes to Hawaii and he wants to go there because he had a grandfather who worked as a missionary there. And he thinks he can kind of reconnect with his family roots, which is kind of connects it to this film in a way. And he just doesn't realize that his grandfather and all these other people um, in his family, the men I think were cursed by a, a voodoo curse. And, and that makes them turn into werewolves and yes. stalk really beautiful young women so <laughs> so what i like so much about death moon is well a robert foxworth is in it to win it his performance is yes incredible robert foxworthy yeah he's good, the good best gold. he's the best and and also it's the closest of these films that feels like an actual exploitation film mm -hmm. like there's something about it like it almost feels like a filipino export yeah it does it does especially like the opening sequence where you see like um uh, a pagan rite going yeah. on and the, the missionary shows up and kills and burns everybody and you're like what a jerk 
Yeah, I think it's I think it's there's post dubbing too because a lot of it was shot outdoors around a beach, and so it has mm. this kind of very very like theatrical B movie feel yes. to it that makes it kind of unique and interesting, and also it ties into this idea of like this generational like sort of shadow that uh, Foxworth's character has to live under, and the same we see here with Andrew, who in this scene is really interesting because he's he's seeing this woman on the mm -hmm. side the victim from the beginning but but in a very proper manner and that's a big deal for him to like really implement that into i'm proper yes. i follow these lines and rules and boundaries and i never go outside of them and and you know and it's it's a really interesting performance and even though i think we're pretty clear when he passes out at the outside the house mm -hmm. there um of the other family that he's probably the werewolf but here he gives kind of maybe he offers maybe the most warmth and sort of the closest mm -hmm. andrew is to being andrew mm -hmm. when he's yeah. not a werewolf um and uh and and so there's it kind of throws a little shadow over oh maybe he's not the werewolf or you start to kind of like him a little it's a really interesting scene that i quite like yeah. and I, I wanted to mention that what he talks about i think it's called like siebert syndrome based off oh, yeah, of something yeah, called yeah. like black water fever that's actually a real or black water yeah black water syndrome or black water fever that's real and it is no. real it is actually like uh related to malaria um it's very uncommon it's actually one of the most dangerous forms of malaria um it includes stuff that you would see him kind of having here rapid pulse high fever chills uh mm -hmm. and um and anemia was another one, but it, it seldom appears in a person until he's had four or five attacks and then it becomes endemic and then he, it really starts to hit him. Um, and so you, he has to take the kind of drugs that he talks about here. I don't know if the exact same drugs um, mm -hmm. and also whole blood transfusions, which kind of gives it a vampire quality in a really interesting yeah. way and also total bed rest. Um, but the mortality rate is huge. It's like 25 to 50 percent. And so while Siebert's fever doesn't kill him here. The, it is um he's gonna meet his maker so yeah it still, it still kills him in, in a <laughs> yeah. long long roundabout way it's still gonna end up bad for him and i also think that this is a really interesting connection between characters because they talk about the french side of town the french side mm -hmm. of town the people that don't belong here because they're immigrants or they're foreigners and yet it's a big deal for the really rich family for the women to learn french yes and yet, at the same time, they're totally discriminatory towards the people that that they're, that's their native language. And but she's the connector between the two, because um, she's this character that comes from the you know the big, huge, uh, well-to-do family. But she's kind of taken a step back from that. She's like purposely trying to distance herself, sort of from the legacy of her family. Not that she's ashamed of her family, but I think she does not like the way the the societal expectations that are given to her right mm -hmm. as be, a woman in the family and so she ends up she ends up becoming kind of the solver of the mystery at yes. least the first part of it and i think that that's really interesting and here come the great special effects that we're going to yeah. get a lot of here in just a second we can so, talk about that in so a minute commercial break everyone take yeah, two take, all right here we're back everyone after the commercial feeling good feeling great there's a werewolf here i like oh gosh poor doctor guy 
Oh, yeah. You know, you think he's done for, but she was right. She was supposed to be the next vic next victim because he doesn't kill him. Mm -hmm. and, yes. and I think that that's interesting that, that the, he has these specific people. And I'm not really sure why he's supposed to attack that particular family, mm -hmm. but he obliterates them. And, yeah. and one thing I want to talk about while we're here is um, I think it's important because the number one movie of the season was The Night Stalker, mm -hmm. which was, of course, a Dan Curtis production directed by John Llewellyn Moxie and Richard, written by Richard Matheson. And there are some similarities um this being the big one where scorzeni who's the vampire in the night stalker is running loose in the hospital and creates total havoc and he doesn't necessarily jump through a window um that i can recall although he might have but he does rip off a car door yes in this great 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 like sort of scene of total chaos and we saw him rip off the jail door in this mm -hmm. and so i think that's really interesting and so i wanted to briefly talk about the legacy of Moon of the Wolf. So Joe R. Lansdale, who's this really amazing author, um, you might know him because he did the Happen Leonard series, which was made into a TV series, and he also did Bubba Hotep. He, uh, he believes that the novel Moon of the Wolf had some influence on the Night Stalker, but more importantly, he also remembers the first time he saw Moon of the Wolf. And I just want to give you this quote, which is from a column he has called Lansdale Unchained, which is available on Subterranean Press's website. He wrote, quote, Moon was not only a good werewolf novel with a unique approach to the subject, it was made into a creepy television film starring David Jansen. When the show first appeared, and it could stand a remake, I remember where I was and when I saw it. I was at a friend's house, and we came upon it by accident. Accident. There were only three channels in those days, and I was changing channels, and we did this chore by turning the dial on the set hand by hand, no clicker, and I came upon the program just as it was beginning. We got hooked. Our plans to go out and ride around looking for girls evaporated. We got lost in the story, especially me. This was my meat. My writing career was still a few years ahead, uh, I'm sorry, away from starting, and almost 12 or 13 away from me becoming a full-time writer, but this kind of story, especially then, was just the sort of thing that made my blood boil and my creative passions jiggle with excitement of a big breasted stripper <laughs> working on it <laughs> i'll stop it there um so anyway um he's likens the two um mm -hmm. the novel to the night stalker which i think is really interesting because this was the year that monster movies yeah. were going to be coming really popular and some of the reviews pointed that out that they thought that this movie was a really great throwback um, to the Dracula Frankenstein era, um, mm -hmm. the Wisconsin State Journal from Madison, Wisconsin, actually pointed that out directly. Um, the Boston Globe really enjoyed the movie, too. They called it a uh, slickly produced and entertaining telefilm. Greg Kilday of the Los Angeles Times thought that although Moon of the Wolf was had an obvious kind of... Uh, twist to it he did like the way uh they captured the ambiance of the south and he thought barbara rush's portrayal of a woman seeking independence from her social standing was really well done and he he quote um mentioned her as the highlight mm -hmm. and this is one of the great scares in the film i always love this yeah scene. i love He's that just yeah. through the window she's got her got him on her mind she knows what he looks like she knows he's showing up in that shirt and she's ready for him, you know, and um, and she's fantastic in this. She really is. And we haven't talked a lot about Barbara Rush in mm -hmm. terms of her career, but she like uh, Bradford Dillman was one of those people that liked to take work when it came to her. She loved just accepting roles and she uh, was an ingenue. She was very beautiful young actress who ended up in the studio system. As a matter of fact, a lot of these actors were in the studio system. I didn't mention that David Jansen started acting at nine. And he I didn't got, know that. yeah, wow. he got caught up in the studio system himself, as did Bradford Dillman. Um, 
But she did some genre work. She was in When Worlds Collide, and she was in uh, Ray Bradbury's It Came From Outer Space. She was in an episode of The Outer Limits. She did an episode of Night Gallery called Cool Air, which is a bit of a classic. And she also appeared in The Eyes of Charles Sand, which also featured Bradford Dillman. And I think that was made a little bit before this film. So she dabbled in horror. She seemed in sci-fi. And she seemed to really enjoy um, doing that kind of work. She seemed to enjoy everything she did, to be honest with you. Like, if you read interviews with her... She really talks about this idea that she never saw herself as a star and she just wanted to work, work, work. Yes. And and she did everything she could when she would land the roles just to she just enjoyed the process of it. And um, actually, 1972 was a huge year for Barbara. Um, I'll tell you, she appeared in uh, two episodes of Ironside. She was in Maud. Um, she was in uh, Owen Marshall, Counselor at Law, which was a short-lived series, a TV movie called The Man. She was in Cades County, another short-lived TV series. I mentioned The Eyes of Charles Sand, McLeod, which also is an Everett Chambers production, Marcus Welby, MD, and a TV movie called Cutter. That's one year. Yeah. So um, I want to mention something, a quote. I actually found a quote of her from working on the set, but I guess we'll wait till we see Bradford Dillman because it ties into the makeup job. And I, I do want to talk a little bit about his makeup. I, I was just going to mention that Barbara Rush was also um, in two episodes of Ellery Queen, the great, the great show, mm. uh, a few years later. And one of the ones she's in, The Adventures of Old Lang Syne, she plays... Um, I forget, I think, a character named Martha Zellman, who's the, the um, uh, personal assistant to the person who gets killed. And she wears glasses, and they make her they make her look like a nerd. Yeah, that's and, impossible. And, I, it, it, and it's funny because it, it, when, I, when I, I finished watching this, and I thought, let me look what else she was in. I know her from stuff. And I was like, she was Martha Zellman? <laughs> what? And if you go see that episode, you're like, no way. She looks super nerd. Super wow. nerdy. She worked with David Jansen an awful lot too. So she was in two episodes of The Fugitive. It was a two-part episode called Landscape with Running Figures. They were in um, The Eleventh Hour, Make Me a Place from 1962, World in My Corner in 56, and Kiss of Fire in 1955. So they actually had a really good working relationship. And she was a childhood friend of Bradford Dillman's as well. So oh, wow. like when I talk about a family affair... I mean, yeah. this is a family fair. I mean, we're talking about people who have really interesting working relationships yeah. with each other. And and I think that it enhances the chemistry overall in um, the film because they're all really just there's just chemistry, especially these two. Yes. It's fire. Yeah. It's fire. Yeah. And, <laughs> and yeah, I, I, and we're going on the climax here. And this is the, the book. And I won't go into it because there's a lot going on. But the book doesn't. It doesn't quite do what the movie is about to do now, which is almost does a kind of final girl slashery thing. Yes. Um, and we'll talk about and, that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, I, I will say, I, I do like this, this closing sequence here, but there's something, there's something weird about as, so, so um, Whitaker knows that, um, you know, that the, the werewolf's on the way. And then he, <laughs> the next few minutes is just him chasing a horse around. And I, I know I know what he's meant to be doing. He's, he's meant to be trying to trying to trying to stop. Um, uh, There's the, the werewolf on a horse. There we go. There, we got he, our doom buggy and we got our horse. Yeah, werewolf on a horse. Um, and, and but but actually, what this kind of rem reminds me of a little bit. Uh, there is a, a French film called Devil Story from the mid '80s, and throughout that movie. As the 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 lead gal is going through all kinds of machinations with all kinds of evil things, there's this strange guy running around chasing a white horse. And every time I see David Jensen running around with this horse, I'm thinking, why are you chasing the horse and not back with the lady who's with the werewolf? But that could be just me, though. So 
Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it seems kind of logical, but I do want to talk about the makeup here, which is really fun. This was done by two brothers, Thomas and William Tuttle. Now, Thomas and William Tuttle have really amazing filmographies, but they only work together in a couple of things. This, something called Enemy of the People, The Greatest, which starred Muhammad Ali playing himself, and When Hell Was in Session, which is a 1979 TV movie. But William Tuttle actually won the first Oscar for makeup but it was an honorary oscar in 1964 for the seven faces of dr lao mm. um you know they didn't have oscars for makeup then it would only be after uh the american wolf in london that Mar yeah the werewolf movies yeah that yeah. yeah that's right that's an that's an interesting connection but he also was uh he created the morlocks in the 1960 film time after time he was oh. the head of mgm's makeup department now his his brother came along later they were both from jacksonville florida also southern based um and he would end up working in a ton of tv movies including bad ronald the Day the Earth Moved, and The Great Houdini. So um, I think that they did a really fun job on the makeup here. It's like, it's it's not like a lot of werewolves. Like, it's not it's not too much. Mm -hmm. There's still Bradford Dillman behind there. Mm -hmm. Like, you can see him. And it's a lot of fun. And um, Barbara Rush commented on it because she thought it was really charming, um, the makeup. And she said that Bradford Dillman and her were childhood friends and there was a lot of laughing going on when they were making the film but she said um quote I particularly enjoyed working with Bradford Dillman who was a dear friend of mine we more or less grew up together in Santa Barbara in uh, one of these he played a werewolf and he'd have these hairy mittens as part of his costume and he'd come tramping in all the time as a werewolf I have a tendency to get very hysterical around how funny people can be and he'd just make me crack up uh, we were shooting I think in New Orleans or Mississippi somewhere in the south on location so it was very hot poor Brad who had to walk around in those mittens end quote and I just thought that that was great and there you can see them there it's a lot of fun. And, mm. um, and you know, the TV movie had to kind of work with less, you know, a lot of times. And so, like, the big budget theatricals kind of not only have a little bit more to work with in terms of finance and maybe even creative freedom, because this is definitely in the studio system that's more stringent because of things that they can't have mm -hmm. in the TV movie. But also, if you don't mind me talking a little bit about the demographic and the final oh, girl please, here. Yeah. So what makes Barbara Rush so interesting to me is it's probably important to know that the most important demographic for the made-for-TV movie is actually women aged 18 to 49. And this is a really good example of how you can have a woman who's maybe not the number one lead in a film, but make the character uh, and the film appealing to women. And that's by having somebody like Barbara Rush actually like very independent, very strong, and kind of working against this idea of like being stuck in these societal norms. And I think it's interesting, we call it Final Girl and we're referring back to slashers, but the final girl in the TV movie, and I'm just going to call her that because it's just easier than saying, like, the female heroine or whatever, um, always kind of existed in the TV movie. And I don't know that it fully gets credit for that. So I just wanted to briefly run over a handful of movies I thought of just in, like, the two seconds I thought of it when I was making my notes for this. Elizabeth Montgomery and the Victim, which came out also in 1972, an another big TV movie, has her, you know, she has to save herself. The point, the most important thing here is it's, it's women saving themselves. They don't wait for the man to show up. They take care of business. Five Desperate Women has a really interesting, what I will call final girl, even though there's several survivors, in that she definitely is living outside of the societal norms that that the the characters are expected to live inside um 
Isn't it shocking? With Ruth Gordon has the world's oldest final girl, yes. right? It's great. Uh, Night Terror with Valerie Harper is definitely about a woman saving herself and having a transformation from the sort of hapless housewife to somebody who can really take care of herself, right? And that's really important. And then later in the 80s, there's a movie called No Place to Hide, which the the advertisement for that makes it look like it's kind of mimicking slashers but it already been established in the tv movie that that movie is all about that girl's transformation right from somebody who was really f kind of living under the thumb of somebody else and learning to like take care of herself and handle the problem at hand which is somebody trying to kill her mm. and 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 taking care of herself and so we see barbara rush i don't know if she had to leave marsh island to get that autonomy, but she definitely comes back and we're under the idea that she's a different person and she's grown. Mm -hmm. And and I think that that's where this movie can have sort of like this, it's a horror movie, it's kind of male-led, and it's kind of like also male-led by one of the gruffest, most masculine <laughs> actors <is>. on TV, <laughs> and yet still have all of these qualities that appeal to women. Mm -hmm. And so this is yet another thing that this movie does that's so fascinating. We've talked about all these bridges, right, mm -hmm. that this film has and how it's like uh, a family affair behind the scenes, but also it's about families, right? And it's also like kind of looking at how the South was being portrayed and how it's going to be portrayed after Deliverance comes out. And where, do, where does the Southern stereotype sit and can we fudge with it, which they do. And then we've got this idea of like, uh, building up a female character who's in a more of a supporting role, but also making her like a really strong woman who stands out so much so that the critic at the Los Angeles Times says, oh my gosh, this is like the highlight of the film for me. And so, and here we come to the tragic, sad and bloody ending of my Andrew Rodan, who I think is just this fabulous character. Um, and um, I don't know. This is a really great ending. And it actually does. We were talking about America Wolf in London. It reminds me of how the loved one has to kill you. Yes, yes. And Paul Nash, he took that to an extreme with every <laughs> single every single Valdemar Dodinsky film. He has to meet someone new who's going to fall in love with him and be able to kill him. Yeah. And, and you see that here. And it's such an interesting because she he says it has to be like silver bullets or it has to be mm -hmm. whatever. The, I can't remember what the other method was. And uh, probably fire because we saw that fire earlier. But like. It's really about the fact that he set this gun up for his sister. And he's mm -hmm. like, this is where we stop this kind of weird generational lineage that's just really harmful to not just me, but like the entire town, mm -hmm. you know, and it has to be somebody who I know loves me. And she's really the only person yes. in town who does. And yeah. so it actually creates this kind of poignancy at the end of the film that I was not expecting mm -hmm. when I saw it the first time. And, and it's a it's a lovely addition to this film. It's 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 a great ending, and and I w I will say as they walk away here, and the movie ends in the book, there is a bit of a romance that begins between the two of them, and it's a really sweet scene where the two of them just sort of after a scare, sort of holding each other, and then they kiss, and sort of realize that um, they're not as sort of alone as they were, and so in the book at this point, although it's different, um, the these two have begun. Uh, kind of a sweet relationship but in here it's it's implied that maybe that will happen maybe that won't for all we know maybe she'll leave town and never come back who knows but it looks like the house and phantasm there for a second well it's interesting because you were talking about these great long shots right mm -hmm. and this is also this idea like can she escape 
yes. the family destiny, right? So there's still there's stuff so hanging. Much, yeah, yeah so and that's a really stuff. fascinating kind of way to look at it. I hadn't even thought about the camera shots. Um, mm. So, yeah, this is uh, a great film, and I'm so glad you sat here with us again. My name yeah. is Amanda Reyes. My name is Dan Budnick. And thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed yeah. it. Yeah. Thanks, everybody.